here we are as a country bemoaning um, the psychological state of our youth, the amount of mass shootings that we deal with, the uh, suicide rates, all the troubles that we have. And yet, what are we doing? We're asking authors to make their stories darker and angrier and more violent. We are, we're feeding it. And then we're so shocked when when our children, who we have fed this terrible food, are dying from it. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to another episode of The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I'm incredibly excited to have Christine Cohen here. She is an author and an incredible one at that. And I wanted to have her on the show because she has got some amazing books that I would personally love to recommend you have in your bookshelves, in your home, as an adult, especially for your children. Um, but I think it's really important that we take an interest in literature, especially for our kids. And that's part of the reason I wanted to have her on. But before I dive into all of that meatier stuff, um, thank you for joining me today. And would you uh, be willing to give a little bit of a bio about yourself for any of the viewers who might be listening who aren't familiar with your work? Okay, yes, thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is Christine Cohen, and I I've written two books so far. Um, the first one is called The Winter King, and the second one is called The Sinking City. Uh, I'm a mother and a wife to three uh, young children, and I live in Idaho, um, as you can tell from my lack of an accent, I guess, or maybe my North Idaho <laughs> accent. Uh, I'm also the director of the MFA program, uh, which is the Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing at New St. Andrews College. and um, did you want me to talk about my books a little bit, explain their the plot of them or? I would love, yeah. So I think from what I remember, The Winter King was the first book that you wrote. Um, yeah, yes. please. I would love for you to explain, um, yeah, the plot and and the storyline of that book. That'd be sure. amazing. Yes. So The the Winter King, it, it came out in 2019. And I actually, I'd written it bef um, several years before. So what happened was I... Uh, I've loved writing stories since I was little and I wrote a lot of really derivative Lord of the Rings fan fiction when I was a teenager. So that was the time when I realized this was something I wanted to do because while all my friends in the summer were off playing sports outside, I was locked in my room with my computer typing out <laughs> trilogies <laughs> uh, about yeah. hobbits and elves and dwarves. And I just loved it. Um, and then I, I went to New St. Andrews College myself. I went through the undergraduate program and I got married. And um, shortly after that, we welcomed our first baby and we moved to a new city. We were, um, I didn't know anybody. My husband got a job there and, uh, and we, we had a three month old who took two two hour naps a day. And I had a very small apartment that I could clean in 25 minutes. And so then I looked around and thought, okay, well, what do I do with my time? And I remembered how much I loved writing. So I just picked it up again and started um, trying to get some, some words on a paper. And I wrote a really awful manuscript, which I think I maybe even sent to my mom because I was like, look, well, look what I've done. And, and she was, you know, she was as impressed as mothers are, but was sort of like, yeah, this, this could use some work. So I threw that one away. And then I wrote another manuscript, um, which was less awful. And then I, uh, I think by that point, we actually had two children. I was still just kind of plugging away, working at my craft. And then um, I heard about something called National Novel Writing Month, which is um, 
the month of November, a lot of writers do it where they try to get 40,000 words, I think, written in, an, in one month. So basically you're trying to write the first draft of a novel. And I thought, I'm terribly morning sick with our third child. I might as well <laughs> do this to distract myself. So yeah. I started The Winter King. And at the time I had um, just some, I wasn't outlining at that point. I just had some vague ideas of what I thought I wanted to write about. So I knew that I wanted to write a story about a village. And in my mind, I could see it. It was like a Nordic um, village trapped in, uh, sort of surrounded on three sides by fjords and then a mountain range on the fourth side. And so very isolated, it's sort of late middle or early middle ages um, and kind of Viking-esque. And, and I wanted to write about um, a religion there that had um, essentially just been warped or twisted. And a girl who's a part of this village and is feeling the fear both of kind of the winter that's around her and also this what feels like a very oppressive religion so that was um from the get-go that was kind of the idea i had and so i started writing it on november 1st and i finished it right at the end and um it was just awful i mean it was you know <laughs> once again although this one i said to my mother and she goes okay i think you have something here like she was she was excited about that okay. one and I was excited. So by then I knew more, I knew what I was doing more, you know, I knew yeah. how to write a beginning, middle and end, how to give my characters an arc. Um, and so I just started revising it, going back over it and um, figuring out what worked and what didn't. I sent it to some early readers and they gave me feedback and, and, um, and then I, I, I actually ended up, what's interesting is, so that one is, I don't know if Australia has the same age categories for children's books that the U.S. does. But in the U.S., we have middle grade books, which are for eight to 12 year olds. And then we have young adult, which is for 13 to 18. And so because my main character was 16, because there was um, just a very slight romance in it, you know, she's she's in a Viking village and she's 16 years old. So, of course, she's at marriageable age. Um, so because of those things, it's considered young adults. So I ended up signing with a New York agent for that book which was really exciting. Um, and we worked on it some more, did more edits, and then we sent it out to the editors at the, the publishing houses. And consistently the feedback we got was, this is lovely, but it's not old enough for young adults. And, right. and by that, what they meant was it was not, um, it wasn't checking the boxes that they had in their mind for what teens wanted to read, which was, it didn't have either, um, explicit scenes or at least implied intimacy. It didn't have mm. um, LGBTQ plus representation. It didn't have, you know, there was, it was not checking any of these boxes. I myself was not a person of color. Like I, you know, there wasn't anything that they were, that they were like, oh, this mm. is, this is following the zeitgeist that were, you know, that we're a part of. And so um, we just couldn't get any bites on it. And it was discouraging to me, particularly because I knew having been a 14, 15 year old at one point that yes. this is a book that they would love to read. And that um, I, I even have heard from parents of um, non-Christian kids that they're like, we don't want to give our kids really graphic material, you know? And so it's like, what do you, what do you give someone who is, if they're 14 years old, they've grown out of middle grade. They don't want to read about a 12 year old anymore. 
but they're, they're either not ready or just shouldn't be reading a lot of the material that's out there for young adults. So, you know, what books are for them? Um, and, and so I knew that I didn't want to just change it in some way to fit whatever, you know, our culture was demanding. So I ended up, um, I parted ways with my agent and then I took it to Canon Press, who uh, is my publisher and they loved it. And um, I worked again with the editor there, Brian Cole, and we made changes to make it better. But, but I always knew that these were changes that were actually improving the story and not just checking boxes, you know? Yeah. So, um, so that was how the Winter King came, came to mm. be. Um, and then after that, I had actually written while the Winter King was out on submission with editors, while I was do- waiting, I wrote The Sinking City, which is my second book. Um, so by the time the Winter King came out, I was actually already ready to send my editor at Canon my next one and say, hey, you, what do you think about this one? Oh, um, you there. <laughs> Look at this Yeah, one. exactly. Well, I have your attention. <laughs> Uh, and, and it's been fun because that one is a very different world. So the winter King, um, I think it's doing really well. People really seem to enjoy that one. It has a very kind of, like I said, a cold Northern feel to it. Mm. Um, and, and it feels, it's supposed to feel like a myth, like it has sort of, um, I'm playing with the myth of Hades and Persephone and the idea of, um, a, a god who who leaves or who's cursed the ground with winter, you know, and that when he returns, spring comes. And so I was playing with kind of a lot of the big monomyths that we know. Um, and then with the sinking city, I thought, okay, I want to do something just entirely different. Like I, yeah. I, I, I want to try something different. It's, um, it's like giving someone a kind of a different palette, you know, to, to experience. So with that one, it's set in 17th century Venice, and the main character is the daughter of a Venetian uh, nobleman, the Patricians. Um, And, oh, I should add, it's Venice, but with a twist, because in addition to all the guilds that they had back then, you know, everything Mm -hmm. was set up on kind of a guild system. There is also a magician's guild. So uh, Leona, she's she's the daughter of a nobleman. She... um, on her the eve of her 16th birthday, catastrophe strikes and she's forced to flee her home and disguise herself as a boy and become the assistant to the most notorious magician in Venice. So um, I was playing with that one. I thought, okay, I wanna write something that feels more like a fairy tale. You know, mm-hmm. so I set it up with um, a very fairy tale-esque beginning of like something bad happens at your 16th birthday party. You know, that's, yeah. that's a, uh, Sleeping Beauty fairy tale right there. And then, um, yeah. and then I also was working with like the, one of my favorite Shakespearean plays is Twelfth Night. So the, in that one, you have the girl who disguises herself as a boy and all the, the mm-hmm. mischief and mayhem that ensues. Um, so anyway, those are, so that one is supposed to feel much more um, bright and colorful. You know, I'm dealing with masks and balls and um, magic. And so it's, it's a fun, I guess, contrast to the first one, but hopefully they still feel like my type of story. It's mm, incredible. I, I love that you were so into fantasy and Tolkien and, you know, all of those. I, I, I love fantasy. And I think a lot of people do. I think that a lot of people think that they're not cool if they like fantasy, but I think everybody <laughs> is just in denial. Like who doesn't love fantasy dwarfs and elves and dragons and mysterious right. cities with magicians and all of these things? Like it's just magical. I think it's because 
there is so much mystery to our God as well. And so many things that he has kept secret for him. And, you know, he's revealed himself to us in such a way, um, knowing that our natures are curious and creative. And I love it when you get people who can hone into those things and create amazing stories that fulfill that part of our minds as human beings. Um, So would you say that your two, The Winter King and The Sinking City, your two books, are Mm -hmm. they, would they be in the fantasy genre? Absolutely. Yes. So The Winter King is, um, I, I tend to call them both low fantasy. So high fantasy would be more when you get to really intricate world building and elves and dwarves and different species. And that type of thing is generally considered high fantasy. Usually if it has a map at the beginning of the book, you know, then, you know, you're getting into high fantasy. (laughs) Um, Low fantasy is, is generally what I have written so far, which is essentially our world, but with a twist. So it's kind of one Mm. step removed from um, our world. So, and I personally like doing that because it, it makes it easier for world building. You know, I don't have to come up with an entirely new ecosystem, a new uh, commerce and trade and language, uh, understanding <laughs> language. Exactly. Like there's yeah. a lot that that is actually not my favorite part of writing. And so I would rather take something that we already have. But like you said, you know, our world is so magical. Like God has infused it. It is the spoken word, right? So like it's, it's infused with, um, power and majesty. And I think that we are still learning and discovering new things about it, even with our, um, the, the more that we understand and know about our brains or, um, any, actually I was just listening Mm -hmm. to a book the other day that was talking about peregrine falcons. And it was saying that they, their nerve receptors, um, transfer, information, their optic nerves from their eyes to their brains 10 times faster than humans. So Mm -hmm. things that we see going really fast, like a dragonfly's wings go slow to them, which of course allows them to be great predators. Um, But it's such a fascinating thing to think that like, these are people who, or these are animals that are experiencing the world in a completely different way than we are, you know, things are sped up or in slow motion or, you know, like, and, Mm -hmm. and that, um, and, and I love learning things like that. And so even when I'm writing, uh, like with the sinking city, the magic in the story, um, I worked really hard to make it feel like it could just be a natural outworking of the world, the way it is like maybe in, you know, in the future, we might learn about how to, the way we can manipulate certain elements and metals and whatever, like this might be just another thing that God has given us that we have, that we should use in accordance with his will. And, you know, according to nature, Um, but, but that isn't evil or bad, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I think a lot of, um, Christians, uh, sometimes like I know, for example, my parents, they're from that generation where it's just any magic is bad. Stay away from it. They don't really have the critical thinking to, um, I guess, differentiate between good versus evil when it comes to those things. So it was just always don't touch magic, don't do any of those things. But how would mm-hmm. you um how how would you as as an author and as a Christian author navigate um presenting fantasy in a good and godly way as opposed to, you know, some people criticize the Harry Potter, for example, and say right. Christians should avoid that. How do you and 
you know, a lot of people say, well, what about Tolkien? He's got wizards and magic. Right. So how would you as an author, I guess, steer on the C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, as opposed to other types of fantasy stories? And yeah, how would you navigate through that? Yeah. So, and, and it is true that I think sometimes when, when parents or adults say, oh, we magic bad, you know, that idea, um, we're forgetting again, like I said, the fact that our world is magical, that like mm -hmm. I, uh, that though there was a wizard stool in the Bible, you know, between Moses and, and, um, the Pharaoh's servants. And yes. so it's like, you, you know, we have, we have plenty of examples of ways that I guess we could call it magic is, is used. Um, what I, what I think that Lewis and Tolkien understood and what I also attempt to do in my story is show that anything that, um, anything that I write in my story has to be in subjection to God because it is his creation. And, um, and there isn't anything that could one up him or that's even on mm. his level, you know, it is all part yeah. of the created world. So if I have magic in my stories, which I do specifically in the sinking city, um, there are rules about it because like you cannot create something ex nihilo. So, so even in, um, Harry Potter, you know, there's times where people are just conjuring something up out of nothing. And it's like, no, that's not the way the world works because, um, that's, you know, God has given us matter. And so you can, again, like the same way that you can melt down metal and create a sword or whatever, mm -hmm. like I, I, I have magic be something that we can in the story, these characters can create, but it has to be done in submission and obedience to God. And if it isn't done that way, then it's dark magic, then it's, it's evil. Um, and it's the same thing with Tolkien, with Saruman versus Gandalf, you know, in the way yeah. that they are either rebelling against um, the, their order or being in, in submission to it. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of how I try to look at it. And I do. And the thing is that, um, you know, I'm creating a fantasy world, so there's going to be differences, but they still need to be, it, I, I still can't have like an ethical system that is um, wrong or, you know, that's yeah. anti-God. Like I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't create a fantasy world in which murder was okay, you know? Yes. And so, and so there are, of course, there's checks and balances there, but, um, and, and when we talk to our kids, so my kids have read Harry Potter and, um, but they also understand, like they've also read the Bible and know that there's parts where it says you shall not permit a sorcerer to live. And, you know, there's like, there is, um, magicians and the way that they're shown in Harry Potter. If you were to take that and transpose it into this world, it'd be a real bad thing. Like we can't, you know, they, they understand that this mm. is fantasy and that this is a place where the story itself fails. And, um, and so I think some of it is just having good open conversations with your kids yes. about it, because I do totally understand the concern um, with with the evils of of magic. So, yeah, absolutely. I think there's it's a real. Um, I think I think you hit it the nail on the head there. I think it really depends on the relationship you've fostered and cultivated with your children, and it also right. is very dependent on, I guess, the individual child as well. I mean, there, sure, there are certain books that you could probably just throw on any kid's lap and go, it's not going to lead them astray. It's not going to, right. to hell. It's not going to do this. That's great. And then there's books that you would go, my child is never going to touch that. And then there are books yeah. where you go, depending on where my child's at, 
where you know as the individual that's something we can work with with a christian right so i think it's i think dialogue like you said conversation and being involved with your children um yes really key to i guess filtering what they can and can't do but you mentioned it's interesting oh i just gonna say because actually with the harry potter stories to me um i'm less concerned about my kids going off and i don't know filling a cauldron and trying to create some magical potion. And I'm more concerned with them imitating Harry's real bad attitudes towards his friends. When, and the fact that there's no yeah. uh, seeking of forgiveness, reconciliation, you know, those types of things. So the I, moral I actually things in it. Like, yeah. yeah. When they're like, Oh, Harry Potter, I love it. I'm like, I, yes, there's parts of it that we, we think are great, but I read them out loud to the kids and I will pause and be like, okay, so this, at this point, Harry should have apologized. Hermione should have gone and found a teacher, a responsible adult, and told them what was going on. You know, like those are actually the things that I think are more impactful to a kid, you know? Yeah, the character, like not not as in the character, but like their character of their their soul and their heart. That's the important meaty stuff. Yeah, Harry is like this spoiled little rat who you know thinks he's some sort of godlike wizard because of the history he's had, but um. Yeah, but no, I I think it's um I think those are all really important conversations, and I you know I think we take a lot of care with the things we let our children view. Well, you would hope if you're mm-hmm. a good parent, right, that you're gonna you're gonna filter what is on the television in your home. You're gonna filter the friends that your children keep. You're gonna filter what church you go to, what school they go to. Whether you know you're gonna be filtering a lot of things, and I think literature is something as well that we as parents should be more hands-on with um, and take more of an interest in. Would you suggest um, as a parent that you should be reading books before you give them to your children or reading with them? Like how, how would you navigate that process with, with yours? Yes. So for, um, I would say probably 90% of the books that I give to my kids, I've read them. Um, and part of that was I was a voracious reader as a kid. So it's easy for me to, mm-hmm. there's, there's still, at least they're still fairly young. So I'm able to grab all the, the old classics that I read and throw them their direction. Um, and then the other 10% are ones that have come recommended to me by mom friends who I really trust. And yeah. um, particularly when it comes to, to the younger group, actually, and what you were saying about um, knowing your child is so true because there are certain, it's it's the same thing with movies. There's certain books that I wouldn't hand to my 12 year old, even though another 12 year old could read them because Mm. I'm, I might know the things that she either would be bothered by, or that would be a bad influencer or or whatever. Um, or a lot of times what it is, is, um, I, I try to keep a, a read on how my kids are doing in terms of, I mean, we all are doing this And, and in terms of like their, um, how they're growing and how their minds are being shaped. And so when I, if I know that I have a child who's struggling with um, thankfulness, maybe, then what I tend to do is, is look for those books where I know, okay, here's a character who's been put through some really hard things mm-hmm. and bears up under it admirably. Um, maybe this is a good time to introduce them to some of the Christian saints, you know, the biographies yeah. of the the Christians who have gone through really hard times because those are so mm. wonderful to read and be like, oh, I guess it isn't so bad if mom asks me to clean my room. Like maybe yeah, I, that's right. maybe I can do that. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't lay um, on the floor being dramatic about something like exactly. as little as that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or, um, 
you know, or, or if my son, if I'm sensing that he needs to read about more courageous kids, you know, then I can give him mm. like Nate, Andy Wilson's books, his, his characters, his boys go through a lot of really hard things. And so those are great ones to give to boys and be like, look at how these kids went through hard stuff and prevailed and struggled and overcame. And so, um, I do think that, I mean, books are just such powerful tools for shaping our loyalties for influencing mm. morality. Um, and so I, even when I recommend books, I always say to parents, you know, vet it yourself first, make sure that this is what you want them to be reading. Yeah. And I think it's really difficult in today's day and age to find good books for your kids and, and for yourself even. I um I remember going to my local library and I've said this story before on the podcast and I was like, just curiosity because we're curious creatures. I'm going to see what's in the kids section, what they're putting out there for children. There, were, it, there was not one book that I would have comfortably hired or lent out or wanted to be made available for any child. Like I, mm-hmm. I cannot explain, like not one. And that's not an exaggeration. Everything was plagued with in, with all these agendas um, and they were just so godless. Um, mm-hmm. And not that I expect a secular library to to home the, the books of God and, and things that would be good, but like it, there wasn't even an impartial or just a agnostic or just a normal story, you know. It was just... <laughs> It was either you're bad because your skin's white, you're an oppressor. It was um, you invaded this country, so you should be mm. sorry every day for the rest of your life. It's okay to have two mums or two dads. It's okay to touch yourself if you're five to explore. I was just uh, like, yeah. I was shocked, right? And this is our state-funded taxpayer libraries. And I just left going, you know what? We need to build our own libraries in our own homes. There's just nothing Mm -hmm. that is there. And you do almost have to return to those classic literature pieces like you mentioned that you would have maybe read Um, and you and me in our generation maybe had we had a little bit more grace, I think, and freedom to be able to peruse things. Yep. Yeah. Would you say there's been a bit of a shift in literature from what it was and what it is now? Absolutely. I mean, it is the thing is that the gatekeepers of the New York literary scene, they know how powerful stories are. um, And they know that the way to shape loyalties is to get things normalized as early as possible. Um, The more it's, you know, it's a desensitization and, and, and also just the power of stories to, um, yeah, to, to change the way we view the world. Yeah. So it's interesting, like even when you were saying about, um, you know, it's bad to have white skin or whatever. I, I was, I was thinking about, I remember this time that I, I think I've told this story on some podcasts also, but I, when I had um, my, I think my five-year-old, I was eating lunch with him and talking to him. And I said, wouldn't it be so neat if you were walking through the woods and you found a house that was made out of candy? And he goes, no, mama, because there would be a witch inside it that wants to eat children. Like he, because <laughs> of the story of Hansel and Gretel, <laughs> yeah. knew that this, this is like a trope in his mind. Right. And, um, and so, and I think we understand that, that kids make those types of connections really easily. And it's, it's one of those things where it's not like I'm actually expecting 
him to find a house made of candy in the woods. But the idea is if you see something alluring and enticing, if a man on the street has um, a car and says there's candy inside it, hopefully that same alarm bell will go off, Mm. you know? Um, It's the it's the idea of like, you know, you should not go into a stranger's house. Like that's, that's the takeaway there. And so I think that, um, a lot of the secular literature that's written for children is giving them new and rewritten tropes and ideas that, so that when they see the world, they're going to make connections in a certain way, Mm. um, just based off what might even seem like innocuous little stories. But, uh, we, we all know that there is no, um, there's no middle ground. There is no, you, you can't be writing a story that isn't swaying people's emotions and loves in one way or the other. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, I mean, even just with my experience was trying to get a book published that was essentially too innocent, you know, it was too sweet and, um, and quiet for, I guess what, what they were wanting to do mm-hmm. for children. And it's, it's wild to me because I, um, as my agent was saying to me, you need to make your book darker. And I was thinking, here we are as a country bemoaning um, the psychological state of our youth, the amount of mass shootings that we deal with, the Mm. uh, suicide rates, all the troubles that we have. And yet, what are we doing? We're asking authors to make their stories darker and angrier Mm. and more violent. We are, we're feeding it. And then we're so shocked when when our children who we have fed this terrible food are dying from it. So it's, it's really a bizarre thing to me. It is. I think Vody Borkham made this incredible quote once and I quote it all the time. I'm probably not going to get it exact, but he said, we can't continue sending our children off to Caesar and then getting mad when they come back looking like Romans. And, you know, it's like that. You're exactly right. Like the world is literally on fire. It's like that Elmo meme, that gift where there's (laughs) fire and he's got his arms up in the air and he's just like, what's going on? And it's like, here, here's some more petrol for you to throw on the fire. Let's give the kids more darkness. And it's like what they need is the light to like they need to you know we need to make our children sensitive to evil again let's let's make that the new trend let's let's sensitize our children to evil because you're right the first step that they do is they desensitize to normalize and I Mm. love that you you know the tropes that you mentioned I had hadn't made that connection before with such a simple story like Hansel and Gretel but you're like yes but now the tropes that they're making is, oh, when I see um, someone in school cut off their genitals for tolerance, that's that I have to accept that. That's empowering. Exactly. Yes. And they're the tropes. And it's crazy how um, they go after children in every single institution like every Mm -hmm. little facet like of their life and I think that reading is becoming excuse me less popular with children but they're still doing it because if they can steal one soul from from the light and bring it to the dark that's that's evil that that they'll they'll do that um and Mm -hmm. so you you want to normalize reading again for children but then you also need to normalize again being sensitive to what they're reading um right have you, have you noticed as well um off topic a little bit but have you noticed that children don't like reading as much as they once did have you noticed a trend away from books and more so towards maybe the screen or other things I think I think so you know I um 
I'm really blessed to be in a community here that really values reading and books. And, um, and so I, I, I have wondered that, I mean, there is still a lot, there's a lot of book sales happening nationwide. Um, one thing that I've noticed, and this is again, skewing older, but I remember when I, um, when I was working to, to get the winter King sold in New York, uh, my agent told me that the primary consumer of young adult fiction, so fiction written for 12 to 18 year olds was 20 to 30 year old women. So those were the people that was actually the audience that was reading young adult books. And so I don't know what the teens were reading or if they even were reading, but it it was partially sad because I thought, gosh, what, you know, what a, uh, is it because 20 to 30 year old women are wanting sort of that vicarious, you know, Mm, reliving of youth, or is it just because, I mean, there was a lot young adult is generally simpler, easier to read. I I'm not sure what was going on there, but it, it struck me as really sketchy. Um, and I think that, I think that there's, um, I think there's still a push for, um, kids to read books, um, because there is the hope again, that they'll be reading the right books, depending on (laughs) what you think is right. Um, but there's definitely uh, it is much harder to to keep the attention span of kids yeah. because they are, um, especially it's really sad, but because kids as young as seven or eight are being given smartphones. And so they have things like Instagram and TikTok, which are those, what, 10 second reels or yeah. whatever that, that give them just that quick um, dopamine hit. And then they move on to the next one and the next one, and they don't get they're not getting um, the benefit of sitting and reading long form the way that kids used to. Um, and, and even TV shows and movies tend to be very fast paced and frantic because they're trying so hard to keep attention. So um, I think that it is something that if you want your kids to be good readers, you do have to be very intentional about it. Um, I mean, you know, we, we very intentionally limit our kids screen time, but even just things like, um, We've always read out loud to our kids from when they were probably too young to understand it uh, because we wanted that to just be part of the liturgy of their life. Um, we gave them when they have when they outgrew naps but still needed some quiet time, we give them audiobooks to listen to. Um, I had a mom friend once tell me she just suggested she was like, just leave piles of books out around the house. It may not be the clean aesthetic that you're looking for in your life, but it's actually like a real big blessing to your kids to just have little stacks here and there. And it's true that if I do that and I kind of rotate through them, my kids, if they're wandering around the house, trying to decide what to do, you know, and they see a book they haven't read in a while, they'll pick it up. And next thing I know, they're lounging on the couch, reading it. So, um, Mm. I think you do have to be more intentional about it because there was a time when kids were bored and there were, there were no screens. So they would, they would just pick up a book, but now you really do have to, um, to make it kind of a, an intentional and even sometimes enforced part of their, their routine. So actually for us, we just started summer, um, here. And, and so instead of they, they're not reading like they were at school. So I have as part of their daily list of, you know, things we're going to do, um, we're doing Bible reading together. We're doing some chores and I want you to find some time to go sit in the hammock and read. And, you know, mm. you can make it fun. You can give them a, a lemonade and, you know, a cookie and say, go, go sit somewhere, you know, just to give them that feeling of like, this is a sweet thing. This is a gift to get to read. Um, but I, I try to, 
to come up with different ways to make it, um, to make it enjoyable. My son, who's seven, he's still, he's still in the early reading stage. So sometimes what I'll do with him is we'll read a chapter book, but we'll alternate who's reading which page, you know, so I'll read a page and then he'll read a page and then it's fun time, you know, to bond with him. Um, and then, and then of course, just finding the books that they like to read. So my, my 12 year old loves biographies. That's her favorite, her okay. favorite thing, which is so funny. Cause I was, I, you know, I'm the fantasy reader. Yes. Yes. My husband is very much into biographies. So I've been scouring the internet for good, solid biographies for, for a 12 year old to read. Um, and then my middle child prefers fantasies. So, but she doesn't really like animal fantasies yet, or maybe she never will. So I've been trying to find ones that she likes. Anyway, it just, it requires making a good study of your kids mm, and yeah. knowing, um, because there are a lot of options out there and there actually are a lot of great options. So just figuring out what ones are going to really hit them and, and make mm. them love reading. Cause I think that's the, that's the important goal is, um, you know, I don't mind, especially in the summer, if they're reading slightly below their age level or whatever, because they just want to binge through something, you know, what I'm wanting is to give them that love of reading, um, as opposed to just being like, oh no, but you should be reading Tolstoy right now because that's an academic, (laughs) you know, novel or whatever. So definitely. And I think it's, this is something that I'm, I guess I'm a living product of my parents never really instilled much reading um, for us kids. We were a very sport orientated family. My family members have represented our country in the Olympics. So this is what we had to compete with, right? If you didn't do good in <laughs> wow. sports, like you have no value. So it was like, we were very get up early, train, train, train. Um, and they were very disciplined in those things. So that was our normal, but yes. reading wasn't really normalized. And it was only when I was in high school, I started to peak a bit of an interest. And in, and funny enough, Harry Potter came out at that time. And I took that upon myself and took the initiative to read it. And I binged through like, and I'd never read before, but I read it cover to cover every single one of them and fell in love with like, I guess you could call that fantasy, like, you know, not Mm -hmm. real world stuff. And then from there, I think I read this book called Winter by, is it Mars, something Marsden? And um, it was a bit of a dark sort of story and a bit shocking, but I quite liked it. It was on the thriller side of things. And this was me in high school, Mm -hmm. just sort of exploring and figuring out what I liked. And then um, from there, I started getting into biographies, interesting enough. Um, There was one called Princess, I think it's by Jean P. Sasson or something. Um, And she did like a whole series about this Middle Eastern princess who was oppressed. And I just read these stories nonstop, all these books, and I just got so hungry for it. And I Mm. absolutely fell in love with reading. And that was my own initiative without having that from my parents. But then I joined the police at 18. And that changed everything. I didn't have time to read. And if I had time Mm -hmm. off, I was sleeping because I was tired or my mind was filled with other evils of the world. I was like, I don't have time for reading a story. Um, And so I sort of fell out of reading. And I think it was because my parents never took the initiative to make it a habit for me that Mm -hmm. when I was directed elsewhere, I lost lost some of that. And so something Mm -hmm. that I really would love to do um, with my own family 
and something how I would love to raise my my children like you know uh, would be taking the initiative and making it a habit to read and like you said I think you need to teach children not only to read well and to have good grammar and to write well and to articulate and all that, but teach them to love to read. And I think that's truly where the skill is as a parent to teach your children to love reading. And I love yes. my parents, but that's something they didn't do. And I, it's something that like now I have such a desire for information, but I have a terrible habit now of picking up a book and getting so into it and finishing half of it and then putting it down and then forgetting it mm. and going, oh, what have I done? And I, <laughs> I hate that in myself, right? I, I hate it in myself. Um, and so that's like I want to do better for my kids in the future. And, yeah, um, yeah definitely. It really is a habit. It's a habit that you have to cultivate. And anymore, it does. It takes so much work um, because our phones are so such a distraction. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I've even gotten to the point where I'll put my phone in the other room while I'm reading so that I'm not tempted if I see a text message or whatever, you know, to, I want to really be able to cultivate that, um, the ability to focus on just one thing and yeah. follow a, um, follow a line of reasoning or a plot or whatever, and not, and not get so distracted by, it. I mean, we have so many distractions and there really is something mm -hmm. just wonderful about getting lost in a book for a couple hours. And, um, and I think it's a really, so for me, this is something I, I suggest to a lot of people because I, um, I do this, my husband, and I do this at night, but we, you know, they, they, of course they have all the studies that show that it's really bad to be on your phone right before bed. So mm. we try to put our phones away and then we both read for 20 to 30 minutes every night, um, in bed. And, and I think that doing that actually really does help wind your brain down and help you sleep better. And, and it also just helps you get through a lot of books. Now I do have some friends who, uh, some of my girlfriends have said, Oh, I could never do that because if I started the book, I would not put it down until <laughs> yeah. I had finished it. And, uh, you know, it'd be four in the morning or something. So I don't know if it would work for everyone, but I really do think, and I try to get my kids to do that too. Like, I think it's just a really, again, the liturgy of it, it's a nice way to, to end the day and to unwind, mm. um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people do that. I, I have a friend from uh, my old church, her and her husband do the same thing. They have a pile of books next to their bed and every night they just do that. And, you know, I always have great intentions, Christine. And I'm like, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. And then All right. I'll be trapped in some serial killer documentary and I'll just oh, be no. watching it and it's midnight and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I better go to, and then I'll go to bed and plug my phone and go, I'll just check notifications one more yep. time. And then it's like, oh, it really, you have to be so disciplined. And I'm, I'm yes. rebuking myself as I'm speaking to you right now. This is something I need to rebuke myself. I need to do better at this um, because I think, you know, how the parents are is often how the children are. And if I'm undisciplined right. in this, how am I expected to discipline my children in this or, you know, my household in this? It's something I need to sort out first and foremost, I think, before I try to push that on anyone else. So if, right. if anything comes yeah, in today, I've rebuked myself. Thank you. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. Maybe tonight you'll, you know, find that book on the bedstand and crack it open before bed. And <laughs> yeah, I'll message you and go, thank you, Christine. I did it. Yes. 
I did it. You could, I would be like the it's Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm day one sober of actually yes. reading a book before bed. So, yeah. This will be my good. inheritance to the nations is getting everyone reading it in bed yes. at night. <laughs> yes, that is good. That is goals right there. Yeah. Right there. Um, but look, you also, you do a lot of um, talks about getting into fiction and you do a lot of like, I guess you like to teach and, and help people um, I guess, write for themselves. And I was saying this before we pressed record and we went live is that I have so many ideas in my head and so many things that I think that would be a great story, but I don't even have the first clue how to put it to paper. You kind of help people bridge that gap a little bit. Can you explain that side of what you do? Yeah. So yes, this will be my official plug for the MFA program <laughs> at New St. Andrews because, um, we, it's a it's a low residency two year MFA program and uh, and what it is is it's called Camperdown if you're trying to find it I think it's CamperdownMFA.com um, and what I realized was that I I do I love helping people finish a novel so it's the easiest thing in the world to start a novel and this is something mm -hmm. that many many people do is you get an idea. And you're really excited about it. And it's sort of like the honeymoon stage of a marriage where you just, everything's rosy and nothing could go wrong. And then you hit, I don't know, 10,000 words or whatever, or the first roadblock. And you suddenly are like, this is not fun anymore. And now I want to stop. And, and I think the part of it is that we tend to view art as, as something we should enjoy. Um, it's like a, a hobby. And even writing is that way. And so we're, we think to ourselves, okay, well, if I'm not enjoying it, then I shouldn't be writing. Like I should only write, I should only sit down and write when I feel like it. And I, I try to help people do the mindset shift of realizing that this is um, a career, this is your work. And so um, there are going to be days when you don't feel like showing up to the keyboard to write. And you have, you really do just have to push through that. So a lot of writing is that same self-control. It's the same, um, diligence of saying like, okay, I, um, yes, I'm at a tough part, but I'm not just going to abandon it and try to write something new. I'm going to push through because you can't fix something you haven't written. So, um, so one of the things that we do with the MFA program is, um, it's, uh, when you graduate, you will have completed a novel. So that's, that's kind of the, the prerequisite for graduation is you've written, hopefully you've written the entire first draft and had a chance to do one round of edits on it. Um, and, and so what I, the pep talk that I give to the students is um, if you write 500 words a day, which is not very many words, it's, it's actually, it's fairly simple to get 500 words down. They don't even have to be good words. They just have to be words that are moving the plot forward. Um, you can get a novel written if you, you know, if you take off Sundays, uh, you can get a novel written in like three to four months. Um, and, and it's shocking how, I mean, how quickly those words just pile up, like with anything else, it's just the consistency, it's showing up at the keyboard. And, and sometimes what I find is if I give people that 500 word um, minimum, they'll start writing. And this happens to me a lot. I'll start writing and it's like pulling teeth and I'm really hating it. And I'm thinking, why did I choose this career path? And then I get to about word number 480 and suddenly it starts rolling. And the next thing I know I've written 1500 words that night, you know, or, or um, so it, it, there is something about the, um, the fact that God blesses um, diligence and doing something, even when you don't feel like it, 
and then hoping and praying that the emotion will come later. And yeah. that, and that happens a lot with writing where it's like, you, you almost have to just sweat through those first couple hundred words each day. And then it, and then it really takes off. But, um, I, I would love to see more Christians writing really yes. good books. And, and so I, that was part of the reason I, um, accepted the director position was because I, I want to be able to get people, um, from an idea in their head to, to a finished first draft and, and the confidence to be able to do that over and over again, because it might not be a publishable book that they come out of the program with, you know, like I said, I've thrown away, I've actually thrown away three whole novels, maybe four, um, I think three. And, and, and that's okay because I needed to write them in order to know what I was doing wrong in order to learn and get better. And, um, it's, it's a craft. It's, it takes time to get good at it, but yes, I, um, I would love to see more Christians who really understand how, um, telling a good story is going to shape children and adults. Um, Mm. and yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I would love to see more Christians step up into these. I, I, I would say that literature almost falls under the banner of entertainment. Like it is something that you do to entertain yourself in some way. And I feel yes. like we've almost um, just thrown the white flag up, put our hands up and gone, okay, Satan, we you, you can have this domain because we've almost mm-hmm. given up on our movies. On Like it's just trash when you, when you look at it. And um, there, there are a few like, you know, incredible Christian um, people who are trying to fill that void, like Law TV. They're trying to get a lot of people to take initiative with creating Christian films and not those G-grade, <laughs> I hate to say it, um, you know, uh, worse than Hallmark sort of quality, like good quality Christian films that you can enjoy that's on par with what Hollywood's producing. Um, and, right. you know, you see a lot of people who are starting to write children's books again, who are starting to do all this, who are Christian, who come from that Christian um, foundation, which is great because there is such a gaping void in that area of entertainment for Christian families. Um and I would love to see more Christians, yeah, put things in a book for us to read mm-hmm. for our fulfillment and enjoyment because God is a good God. He wants us to get fulfillment from these things. Like these are all good. They're not all right. inherently bad. It's like we're we're so conditioned to think that enjoying a movie or a book is is bad because the, it, it is kind of so worldly. But if we could c- create it in, in as part of our Christian world that always mm-hmm. – points back to the revelation of God in some way or another, similar to how C.S. Lewis did with his Narnia series and Tolkien did um, and you've done in yours. Like even though it's fantasy and it's not the Bible, it still points to God's nature and his revelation. I would love that so much if more people did that and we had, you know, more options at our fingertips. Um, Wouldn't that be part of Christian? I mean, he uses all the great literary tools in scripture typology and foreshadowing and metaphors and similes and Jesus instructs with parables. And so I think, yeah, yeah, if we're imitating God, we should be using stories to teach and to instruct. And I think that like you were saying about the, the subpar movies, and we have that in Christian literature too, where either, um, either Christians are worried about showing true darkness. So they don't, the stories have this kind of strange glow about them where it's like there's not really evil because 
we believe in God and there, how could there be evil in the world that God's created? And it's like, oh, well, have you, have you stepped outside your front door recently? That, yeah. um, and so, you know, my, my stories are, they're, they're heavy. There's a lot of darkness in them. Um, but I'm, I'm always showing at the end or trying to show the light and the fact that good triumphs and that evil is going to lose. Um, and, and so I think that Christians, um, they, they need to, yeah, be careful not to sugarcoat their stories because then they're unbelievable and no one takes them seriously mm-hmm. because we, we know, oh, okay, people actually are bad and they do bad things. And so when you, yeah. you're telling me kind of a lie in this, um, in this fairy tale, you know, sugar plum world you've created. And then, um, on the other side of things, it's, you know, the, um, Christians will say, oh, well, it's only a Christian story. If the main character has an actual conversion at the end, like if we see them, you know, um, being baptized and if God is actually explicitly mentioned and all this, you know, um, and for one thing, it's like, well, we have the entire book of Esther, which is, um, a beautifully written story in the Bible that doesn't, you know, we hit, we are Esther. I think it says she fasts and prays, but it's like, God is not quote unquote, is not mentioned in the story. Mm. It's like, um, it's a really great example of being able to show a redemptive arc and real danger and real darkness and, um, and, and do it in a way that isn't, I guess what we would call preachy. And so I think that's another thing we're looking for is, is Christians who understand that the world is God breathed. And because of that, if you tell a story that tells the truth about the world, then it's going to be a Christian story. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, um, you don't have to put like a little cross on top of everybody's heads to show like, these are the good guys. And then these are yeah. the bad guys. Like um, you can just, you can just tell a good story and trust that God will use that um, to, mm-hmm. to mold and shape people and for his glory. Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, like they don't actually, yeah, like Aslan, sure, is a representative or a, a figure of, of Christ, right? Um, and mm-hmm. then, but most of the time, um, good and evil is like inherited in our natures. You just kind of know what's good and what's evil. And that's part of, you know, our inherited nature is we're born with the knowledge of good and evil, like we are, mm-hmm. um, which is why you can, even in, in countless civilizations that have never really been colonized or taken over by Christianity, they still, you can go into those, those um, groups of people and they still have this like weird fear of a God. They, they, even though they've never been shaped by the gospel yet, like you see tribes and stuff in the Amazon jungle and, and natives from countries that have an understanding and inherited knowledge of God, even though they don't understand right. it. Um, and good versus evil. It's it's inside of us, which is why basic stories, um, when I mean basic, I don't mean in detail. I mean, basic is in the concept, good versus evil. That's why they're the most successful because it's inherited in our natures to want good to prevail over evil, which is why the whole Tolkien, I found that whole fantasy series, it was just a fight of good versus evil and the light always mm-hmm. won and prevailed. Um, it didn't have Jesus being crucified on the cross. It didn't have those things, but it did point back to Christ's light nature and our inherited right. good versus evil. So I do, I totally understand what you're saying there. And yeah, I think that um, storytelling doesn't need to, have those exact things or you're doing it in injustice, I think that you can point to the revelation of God through 
you know, ideas and, and things that draw out our nature, which is even if you look at Hollywood now, the most successful films of 2022, the last couple of years was the new Top Gun movie and the new Super mm-hmm. Mario movie for kids. And you're like, why? And I was like, okay, well, it was Top Gun. It was good versus bad. There was nothing woke in it. Masculinity right. and patriarchy was a good thing, which is not seen today. And why was the Mario movie? The Mario movie wasn't that great, but it played on nostalgia for our generation. Um, and it was, there's just nothing. It was just good versus evil. It wasn't trying to be woke. Yep. It just was a base. And I was like, that wasn't even that great of a story, but I loved it because it was just good versus evil. And it was simple. Um, And I think, yeah, like I would love literature to be detailed, but just stick to those simple ideas, good versus evil. Um, And good always points to the revelation of God and his nature. And that always Mm -hmm. wins. That always trumps over evil. Um, Right. Yeah. Now, Moving forward, can you give us, me and the audience, any hints as to whether you're writing any stories at the moment <laughs> or you're going to release any? Do we get a little sneak preview of, of your brilliant <laughs> mind and how it's working? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm in, I'm in kind of a funny spot because I, um, so I, I have two books that I've written since The Sinking City <clears throat> that I've not yet gone out into the world. So I have a, um, another fairy tale that's, um, excuse me, it's a Welsh fairy tale and I wrote it for my kids. Um, I wrote it with my kids, actually. I, I would read them a chapter at night and then they would give me feedback and tell me what they wanted to see happen, which was really fun. I love Uh, that. that And I wrote it, I meant for it to read as a read aloud. So it's simpler, it's shorter. Um, so I'm I'm still tweaking that one. I haven't sent it off to uh, my editor at Canon yet. And then what I actually did is um, I wrote another novel that is, um, so this one would be considered middle grade. So that's for the eight to 12 year olds group. Um, and I um, I wrote it and I, I signed with a different literary agent um, and I'm we're gonna try to shop that one out to New York houses in the next, well, whenever I can get it to her, I'm doing yep. the, I, she had me do some revisions on it. And it, it's funny because coming back around full circle to having an agent again is kind of strange, but, um, I, I hadn't yet given up on the, the dream of, of getting something published in New York, because I do think that there are still wonderful editors there. And I think you can, um, mm-hmm you can reach a whole different audience that way. So um, I, I view it kind of like cross-pollination. You know, if I can get um, people reading books that I publish in New York, um, hopefully that'll send them back to Canon Press to read yeah. my other, you know, my first Absolutely. books and and vice versa. So, um, but uh, actually it was Andy Wilson, Nate, his suggestion to me was try writing something slightly younger, right? For the middle grade audience, see if that's, if, that might be an easier sell in terms of marketability. So yes. we'll see. Um, so that one, I'm almost finished with my edits on it. I'm, I'm feeling the tug of, I also have next week is our, so uh, the MFA program is meets three weeks out of the year. Yeah. So we meet once in February, once in June and once in October for two years. And you just get like a week long intensive Hmm. classes. Um, so anyway, so I have that next week and I'm trying to do, get my lectures ready for that and 
it's uh and then of course I have three children in the house and a yes. very large dog and I'm finding a that, husband and a husband and everything <laughs> is and we're we're he's an entrepreneur so we've got businesses going and it's a yeah. it's all good things but I have to I'm always having to um make sure that my desires are aligned correctly, you know, because mm. the the temptation I think of any writer is to be like, I'm just going to go off into the woods and write and no one <laughs> yeah. will disturb me and I will get this out there into the world. But that is not the way God, I mean, he's given me many wonderful baskets full of fruit and I need to make sure that I'm holding all of them and not dropping anything. So, um, so at this point, I don't have anything like on the docket um, at, ready to go, but I'm hopeful that I will be able to announce something in the next year or so. We shall see. I'm very excited, and um, hopefully, you've you're, you're you're cultivating the birth of three of your offspring, who might also you'll get a very analytical biographer, maybe writer, and then you might have yes. a fantasy one. And we we're still yet to know with the seven year old, I think. Yes. but <laughs> but we might have three little uh, Christian authors out there who are also contributing great. to our bookshelves yeah. and our home libraries. So that would be fantastic. But I'm really excited um, for, yeah, what you're doing in the future. Would you ever consider writing adult fantasy? Is that something that would be on your agenda or you sort of stick to more youth and children? You know, I actually, um, I would never say never. There's, I I have thought about writing adults um, and I'm not sure if I would do fantasy or something completely different. Um maybe just something more modern. I, I don't know. Every This is what happens is I, I read a lot of books and I read pretty widely in genres. And so I'll read something and I'll think, oh, I want to write that type of story, <laughs> yeah. you know? And um, and so I, yeah, I'm not really sure, but I, I would love to write. I'd love to try my hand at it. I, I think there's, um, there's certain types of fantasy that are really complicated and complex. And I'm actually just not sure if I'm an accomplished enough writer yet to do that. And so I'm sort of, you know, with each book, I try to do something a little different or a little bit harder or, you know, so I actually have really broken my brain Mm -hmm. with my, my current one that I'm working on with my editor because it's a heist, which I've never done. And as it turns out, (laughs) you have to be as clever as the people you're writing about. So I'm, I'm trying to come up with, (laughs) you know, a heist idea that's, uh, it's a lot, but, um, well, look, if, anyway. if you ever need someone who's got some inside knowledge on being an undercover, yes. uh, undercover operative, you, you hit, hit me up. I can, I can put your mind in the mind of that. <laughs> maybe I maybe that actually those, would be wonderful. I will take you up on that. I'm sure. <laughs> maybe all those years of my life won't be wasted after all. <laughs> I could use, I could, you know, live vicariously through your characters and all Perfect. those things experiences but um oh I'd love that (laughs) it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here um I would I would love to point people in a direction where they can purchase your books or where they could follow you along or perhaps even inquire if they're interested in that MFA program that you have so if you you don't mind sharing that oh sure okay so um let's see my my website is christine d as in delta cohen.com um, so christinedcohen.com and on there, I actually have, um, uh, I have a sign up link for a newsletter, which I do once a month. And I talk about what I'm working on and what books I'm, um, reading. So I do reading recommendations. Um, and I also have on my website, a whole page that's, that's different book recommendations for different reading levels. Oh, good. Um, yes. And then I, I'm pretty much only on Instagram and I think, I think it's Christine Cohen author. 
I think that's what <laughs> I should know that. But I, I'm pretty sure if you search for Christine Cohen author, you could find me on Instagram. Um, and then um, the the MFA program is just Camperdown, and that's C A M P E R D O W N MFA dot com. Um, and but honestly, if you just googled my name and a some keywords, I'm sure you'd find mm-hmm. what you're looking for. And you can get my books um, through, if you want to support a smaller, uh, you know, local business, you can get them through canonpress.com. Um, but I know it's harder with um, overseas. And so you can also find them on Amazon either way. Yep. Great. Amazing. And I do hope and encourage uh, that would like to encourage the audience listening today um, to go and do that, to support Christian authors. Uh, we're always pointing and complaining. Here's how we live it out. We we actually be better and do better and that supporting Christian authors who are in there, who are giving us alternatives to the rot that we're seeing in the world around us. But it's been such an honor having you on here. Um, thank you for joining me. And um, next time um, you release a book or something, you let me know because I would love to promote it and share it and oh, great. get it out to people. So thank you again. so much. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah.